Welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. I'm Don Van Natta. Today, our guest is Shay Serrano. In my opinion, Shay is one of the most unique, most engaging, most fun voices writing about sports in America today. Shay is a staff writer for The Ringer. He is a two-time New York Times number one best-selling author. Basketball and Other Things and The Rap Yearbook are those two number one best-selling books, both of which I highly recommend. Shay is also the author of Bun B's Rapper Coloring and Activity Book. Welcome to the podcast, Shay. What up, Donnie? I got to tell you, I love superhero origin stories, and you want to know my favorite writer superhero origin story of all time? Yes. It's how school teacher Shea Serrano went from being a freelance writer <laughs> from a freelance writer in 2007, making 15 bucks a story, to becoming a one-time number one New York Times best-selling author. So, how did that happen? How did you make that work? I thought you were going to have a different answer than than Shea Serrano when you set that up. So, I appreciate you picking me. The way that that worked was I was a teacher at the time, as you mentioned. I was teaching at a school in South Houston, a little inner city Title I school. And my wife was a teacher as well. She was teaching at a similar similar uh, demographic at another campus. And we were getting married. She was pregnant with twins. The plan was... We're going to have the babies in June. She's going to have, take six months off of work and then go back to work, and we're going to raise the kids, and we're going to both be teachers for the next 35 years, and that's going to be our life. Um, but about four months into the pregnancy, she had some complications. Uh, she had to get rushed to the hospital. They did this emergency surgery. It was a very like turbulent time in our life, and what ended up happening was she couldn't go back to work. They put her on bed rest. They said, you have to stay in the bed until... The babies come. If you get up, they're going to fall out, basically. And wow. yeah, it was it was pretty terrible. Damn. So that's going on. We're like trying to figure everything out. And then we realized pretty quickly, okay, a teacher salary in Houston, like my biweekly check was $1,100 or something. And our, the, our rent alone in our townhome was 1600 And like, this is not going to work. I'm not making enough money to pay the bills. So we, you know, we just needed supplemental income. I was trying to get a job at like Target or Walmart or as a waiter or wherever. But each time I went on an interview, they would tell me, uh, you know, we would like to hire you, but you already have a full-time job and you're not going to be available when we need you and blah, 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 blah. So I was just straight up at home, like panicked one night up late, like Googling work from home jobs and Ryder was one of them that I saw on a list of whatever website. So I was like, well, fuck it. I'm a, I'll be a writer then. And that's how it all started. And how did you get your first writing gig? I, I, having absolutely no experience as a writer, how did you make that work? You know, there was a, there's a bunch of little tiny newsletter type newspapers here mm -hmm. in Houston. And so it was just straight up like I was just calling every place that I could in town. I was pitching everybody. Like I found a website that had like tips for freelance writers. And I read on there like how to send a pitch email. And then I found some book called Six Figure Freelance or something like that. It was a very dated book. All of the advice in there was like you take your clippings and you mail them to the magazine or Stuff like that, but <laughs> right, pub, pub, published in the last century, probably. If exactly. It's about clippings. Yeah. But they did have like 
it was very insightful when it talked about okay here's how you send a pitch email um, you need this you need this information in there you need that so whatever so I got good at that and I was straight up pitching like Rolling Stone or Fader or whatever nobody would ever respond back to me um, and we were out at dinner one night there's a pizza place by our house that we liked and they had a little kiosk that had a bunch of a bunch of little tiny newspapers that people were printing up in the area so I just grabbed one of each of those figured out who the editor was or the publisher or whatever and then try to find them to you know through email or that route and I just was calling everybody and emailing everybody until somebody finally gave me a chance tell me how you got your job at the Houston press your writing job you did this in a very unique way which I love so with that one the Houston press was like the the paper I wanted to go write for in Houston they're they're very big they're very popular and they were the alt weekly so they were doing what I felt was cool stuff so I was trying to get them to pay attention to me and I was under the assumption that like if you write a story you're probably going to read the comments so I figured out who the editor was at the time this guy named Chris Gray and every time he would write something I would leave a comment on there and not just like hey great article but like I would try to make it clear that I read the article and here's a thought I had about it and I would always sign it with my name Shay Serrano Shay Serrano Shay Serrano I did that over and over for like a couple of weeks and then I knew when I emailed them and my email address is shayserrano at gmail.com. I knew he was going to see that and go like, oh, shoot, this is the guy who's been commenting on all this stuff. So let me open the email. And I, th I think that worked. I assume that worked. And the, uh, I found out later on I also got a co-sign from a, another guy that Chris had met before and worked with. But, yeah, that was how, like, I tricked my way into the, into the system. I love it. Were you, were, you flat, were you flattering him every time, Shay? Uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty I mean, flattering. Was, you know, was it, so you were, so you were flattering, but you were proving in your comments, I'm assuming you're turning phrases. I mean, you were actually trying to write really well, right? In those comments to try to, I mean, it's almost like an audition for a writing job in a way, right? It was, I wasn't thinking about it like that at the time. I was just thinking I need for this guy to recognize my name. So when I email him, there's a better chance he opens my email. It's similar to the way, like, if you email me, I know, I know, Don, I'm going to open that email before I'm going to open an email from someone I don't know. So, I, you know, I was just going that way. I didn't think about it as an audition until probably right now when you just said that. Interesting. <laughs> um, so when you were a kid, you grew up in where you grew up in San Antonio, right? That's correct. South side of San Antonio. South side of San Antonio. And you never dreamed of being a writer as a kid. No, that's not a job that they tell you you can have when you grow up there. They're like, all right, have fun learning how to lay tile or whatever. And and, th and those are the kinds of jobs, the blue collar kind of jobs are the jobs you imagined you were going to have when you grew up as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Growing up, you're like, oh, I guess I'll work at the, at the tire shop or, you know, something like that. It wasn't until maybe 10th or 11th grade when it turned out, I was like, oh, crap, I'm going to actually graduate, it looks like. Nobody in my family had graduated high school before then. So it was like a big deal when I got close and people saw that it was a thing that was probably going to happen. So it was around then that my mom was like, all right, you're, you're going to go to college or you're going to join the military. One of those two things is going to happen. You're not going to stick around here. Uh, but writing was never a thing that I'd even thought about or considered until that night when I was Googling work from home jobs. That's amazing to me. I mean, that's just remarkable because most writers are planning and plotting and dreaming and scheming 
since a very young age. You know, you need a head start in this business, Shay. You know that. And somehow, remarkably, you start just Googling that night and look where you've come in 11 years, man. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's very, uh, it's crazy to think about when you when I try to like process all of every part, but it's not a thing that I did on my own. You know, every step there was somebody there who took the time to like answer my questions or, or, you know, show me a thing or teach me something. There was a, was a list of people that I don't make it to where I am without those people there. Who's the mentor in Houston early on when you're writing for those newsletters in the Houston press that meant the most that really helped you launch your writing career when you were just starting out? When I was just starting out, there were two, Margaret Downing, who was the editor-in-chief of the Houston Press, and Chris Gray, uh, who was the music editor of the Houston Press. They're actually, uh, Margaret is still there, Chris is not there anymore. Um, but, the, you know, he had been there all of this time until recently. Those were the two first people who were like, we think that you can do something good here. We're going to teach you how to be a writer. We're going to teach you how to write a thing beyond just like making a joke on the internet. Like, here's how you get information from the city. Here's how you get a report from the police. Here's how, you know, here's how you interview somebody. They were taking very real amounts of time to show me these things and teach me these things. So without them, there was like, you know, nothing. So they're training you in how to be a reporter and a writer. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, they, that's, that was their like, their history. That's what they did. They, they did big investigative features. So they were teaching me all of that stuff. They were teaching me how to write stories without referring to myself. Like I was writing a nightlife column for them. I did it for almost four years and never one single time did they ever let me use the word I or talk about me in any sort of way. They're like, no, you just can't do it. This is how you have to write. It's going to make you better. Don't worry about it. It kind of sucks, I'm sure. But this is a was, good and way was to that do it. frustrating? Because you have such a larger than life personality on Twitter and in your writing now. Was that did you find that sort of, you know, you feel handcuffed by that? No, because I didn't know at the time. I thought, well, these people know what they're talking about. I'm going to do what they're telling me, and I could feel myself when I'm working on it, getting a little bit better or understanding, you know, a year or two into it, why they were making me do it that way. It was incredibly helpful. So, Shay, I was at this BU narrative conference I spoke at last week, and Roxane Gay was there, and she said something that I just love. I want to I want to read you the quote and then ask you about it. She said, she said to young writers in the audience, don't sit around waiting for confidence, or you're never going to do anything. Don't say you want to be a writer. Say you are a writer. Is that how you started? We... we I mean, how did you find your confidence early on? Did you right away, right out of the box after Googling and writing those first newsletter, first newsletter jobs, say to yourself, I'm a writer? Yeah. It wasn't a thing I believed at the time, but it was a thing that I was able to say. Like, if I tell you right now, okay, when I was growing up in San Antonio, it was me, my three younger sisters, and I have two older brothers, right? Super close to me. Um, and then I tell you this long story, whatever. But right now, you think I have two older brothers. I don't have two older brothers. You just think that because I told you that. You don't worry about anything else. You just take it because I said it. I felt like it was the same thing with writing. If I just say I'm a writer, other people will think I'm a writer. And there you go. That's all you need. So you totally agree with Roxanne's quote. Rox yes. Roxanne is, is brilliant. And I, I agree with everything she says, in part because she's always incredibly insightful, uh, also because I'm terrified of her. 
<laughs> Why are you terrified of her? Because she's so much. What 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 scares you about Roxanne? She's so much smarter than I am. I'm terrified of people who are smarter than me because I know, like, if we get into it, I'm gonna lose. So I'll just listen to what you have to say. Interesting. Yeah, know what you don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's the piece you wrote early on when you were like, "Okay, I got this. I can do this." I th- I think the piece for me was the very first cover story I did for the Houston Press. I had been writing online stuff for them. I had been doing uh, the nightlife column for them, but I pitched a cover story and they let me write it. It was about people who pirate movies. Um, I, I went to school with a guy whose brother, like that's what he did. That's how he made money. And so I talked him into teaching me how to do it and like taking me with him when he does it. And I thought it was super interesting, so I pitched a story, and that was the first time where I had to learn, like, here's how you get in contact with the Motion Picture Association of America to get a comment. Like, I had to learn all of that stuff going through it, so it was a really big moment for me to see, like, the story come out, and it was well-received, and then the most meaningful part beyond all of that was they paid me $2,000 for the story, which, you know, was almost twice as much as I was making in a month as a teacher. So that was like, hold on a second. This could be like a real thing. It was, it was that check where you thought, okay, it was that, that check. Cause you know, I didn't even ask at the time how much they were paying me. I was just so excited to do it like an idiot that I didn't question anything about any money. And the check just showed up and I was like, Oh my God, this is showed up in the mail. Showed up in the mail. Yeah. And you had no idea that's how much you were going to get paid for that story. None, because to write to write on like the internet to write a blog post for the press, they were paying me twenty dollars. If I did a print story, it was one hundred and ninety dollars. So I assumed that a cover story was going to be a little more than that. I didn't think it was going to be two thousand bucks for sure. It's big money, and it that really can, and that'll give a writer confidence too, right? Exactly. Yeah. And 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 what about your voice? When did you find the voice that? so many people have come to love in your books and and in your pieces today that probably didn't happen for a good little while i mean you you start to when you start to read other people there are a bunch of people who i was reading at the time or who i was writing i really liked and in the beginning what you do is you like read somebody and then you go like oh i want to try to do that you're basically just ripping off their style it that's how it worked for me and i would read like a chuck klosterman article like i want to write like that Mm-hmm. And I would try it. And then I would read a Chris X article. He writes about rap. I'm like, I want to I want to write like that. Or I would read a Gia Tolentino article. I'm like, oh, no, actually, I want to write like that. And so you're just taking all these little pieces from these established writers who are clearly better than you. And in the beginning, you're like, I'll just sort of do this. And then after a while, you start to realize that this is not working out that great for me. I'm never going to be a better version of Gia Tolentino than Gia Tolentino. I need to do my own thing. And you step away from that and you just start trying your own stuff. And that's really a very scary process because when you start doing it that way, if it doesn't work out, it feels more of like a rejection of you as a person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're putting yourself out there. It's very personal. Mm -hmm. Right. For sure. But what you were just describing reminds me of what musicians have always done, right? They borrow different styles. Uh, The Beatles, you know, they, they borrowed from... Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry and you know all these all these musicians they admired and, and until they had their own sound and right. and music and music is 
obviously writing is a lot like music uh, in in finding a voice. But but what, was there a moment though, Shay? Was it when you got to the ringer? I'm just curious when you sort of felt like okay. I'm really comfortable in this voice. I'm confident in this voice because that's every write, young writer's challenge, you know, how to get there. Yeah, uh, it's still something I work on now. I think if I have to pick a single moment, I wrote this story about Drake for LA Weekly. Uh, I had moved from Houston Press up to LA Weekly, which is their sister paper. It's like a bigger version of them. Yep. I was freelancing for a bunch of different places. And I wrote a thing for for Ben Westhoff at, the, at LA Weekly. And... Molly Lambert, who at the time was working at Grantland, saw it, and she emailed me, or no, she messaged me on Facebook. She said, hey, I saw the thing you wrote about Drake. This is cool. I showed it to my editors. They like it. Do you want to pitch some stuff to Grantland? And at the time, I honestly didn't know what Grantland was. I knew they were like a new, uh, I mean, I knew they were an established place where good writers were, but I had not really read the site or, you know, I felt like it was out of my league, sort of. Um, but she sent me that email. I was like, yeah, I'm in. I'll pitch them. And then I started pitching stuff, and it seemed like they were picking stories that had that same sort of tilt to them or a little more personality. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, I mean, this is like the top level, and these people are asking for this, then maybe this is what I should be trying to do. And were you at any moment intimidated by Molly's request to, to pitch there when you saw the other writers are there? I mean, Klosterman was writing there. and Yeah, he was there. Wesley Morris, who yep. is a Pulitzer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with a Pulitzer, exactly. All of a sudden, you're in this, it, it, it's it's the pantheon of great writing. Suddenly, you're there with them, right? And you, it's like, isn't that like a tense amount of pressure? How'd you navigate that? Well, I, I don't know. How you do anything when you're scared? You're scared to like jump off a diving board into the water, you're not gonna not be scared. You just do it, and then it's and then you did it. So it was that same sort of way. I was terrified to send them that first email to send a pitch. I was terrified to follow up. I was terrified when I met him in person. I'm I'm at the ringer now, and I'm terrified when I get an email from Sean Finnessy. Like I'm just waiting to for them to find out I'm actually not that good. Yeah, and you put on Twitter a lot, right? Another another week, another another month that's gone by, you haven't been fired. Yeah, right? With yeah, I see those all the time. Because I, I feel like all of the time I'm about to get fired. What was your first pitch? You remember the first story you pitched to The Ringer? Uh, to The Ringer, the first thing I pitched them was a Tim Duncan article, I believe. The first one I pitched to Grantland was a, a an article about 2 Chains, a rapper named 2 Chains. So was most of your pieces for Grantland about rap or about basketball or a little bit of both? It was a little bit of everything there because they were like, you know, oh, you're going to I had written about rap at LA Weekly, so I pitched them rap. And then once I got in, I did a similar thing each time I showed up at a place. I would like use whatever angle I could to get in. So I'm like, I'll be the rap guy at Grantland, and I'll pitch only rap stories. And then I'll like try to, oh, you guys also do movies. Here's a movie pitch, or here's a TV pitch. You know, you just sort of after you get in and you've got the trust of an editor, they they'll usually let you branch out a little bit. And who at? Uh, I'm curious, Shay. Who at? Um both Grantland and The Ringer, you know, who really have been your mentors and the people that you have relied upon and leaned on uh, in, in doing your pieces, doing your work. Oh, man, that's, there's a, a great deal of them. Bill, of course, has been, I mean, I don't even know how to explain how influential he has been or how important he's been there. He's always just sort of been in the background every once in a while, pop up encouraging me or giving me some sort of advice I didn't know I needed. Um, so definitely Bill. 
What what was it like meeting Bill the first time? Uh, again, I was terrified. He has this reputation of of being like kind of a crazy guy, and you read these these stories about him, or you hear stories like whispers about how how wild he is or intimidating. And so when he walked in the room, it was like I was terrified. I was in the L.A. office at Grantland. We were having this big basketball meeting. It was the first time I'd ever been in L.A. It was the first time I'd gotten on a plane and gone to the left on a map. Like it was a whole bunch of firsts really? forever. Wow. Wow. And uh, so, I was, and how old were and how old were you there then, Shay? I was third. I mean, early thirties, thirty-two, okay. thirty-three, something like that. Wow. Yeah. And uh, he walked in, and I was like, "Oh, he's taller than I thought he was going to be," and. He's louder than I thought he was going to be or whatever. And uh, it was very intimidating. But he came up and he said hello and he said some like very nice things to me. And I was just trying not to pass out. And there, that was the first time I met Bill. Do you remember the first time you got a compliment from Bill about something you wrote? Uh, yes, I do. I wrote this thing about – I had gone to see the movie Big Hero 6, this animated movie with my kids. And – the movie starts out with like the little boy's parents die and then his older brother dies a little bit later. Like it was a very sad thing. So I pitched a story where I was going to talk about like how sad different animated movie characters were. The animated movie sadness index or something like that. And I wrote that and I got an email like at two in the morning from Bill and he's like, hey, this thing was great. Good job. I was like, oh my God, he actually read a thing that I wrote. And again, that's another confidence boost. That puts jet fuel in your tank, right, for the next piece. Yeah, absolutely. It's critical. Now, one of the things I admire so much about you is how good you are. I mean, you're not just good. You're great. I mean, you you know, a P, we could do a PhD on how great you are online, galvanizing an audience, the sort of at Shea Serrano persona on Twitter. <laughs> Man, it, I, I'm serious. You could do a PhD. I don't think anybody that I follow, I follow about 1,100 people, are better at it than you. You're so, like, I just want to hang out with you. I want to be your friend reading you on Twitter. How do, oh, you, <laughs> how do you do that? How, how, I mean, you're just being yourself, right? This is not a persona. This is you. Yeah, there's no trick to it. There's just, let me just try to be as honest as I can about as much stuff as I can and and there you go. What usually ends up happening there is number one, you don't have to worry about like keeping up a lie if you never lie. Right. And you also sort of trim away the the people who don't respond to the stuff that you're doing. So it's usually the people remaining are the people who like it and then everybody's just sort of having a good time. So you're you're never not honest about anything online? Is there ever a moment where you're you tell a little white lie or a fib online? On, on uh, yeah, I might exaggerate for a joke or something um if i'm talking about like a basketball game or whatever but as far as how i'm feeling about things no i try to to not lie about that sort of stuff because people can always tell yeah i can't walk around and pretend like i'm this super confident guy people are gonna see right through that there's no way let me let me instead just lean into like the stuff that makes me nervous because, you know, more than likely, it probably makes other people nervous, too. And then we can connect over that. I was trying to think about my favorite Shea Serrano tweets before we did this podcast. And it's, you know, it's like picking your favorite song or your favorite Michael Jordan highlight. But I did whittle it down to two. 
I'm going to read to you. So September 17th, 2017, this is a Shea Serrano tweet. Dogs are dope because you're like, quote, you want to lay on the couch and watch football and eat junk all day. And they're always like, you're fucking right, I do. Dude, <laughs> okay. That's, that's awesome. That's, that's, that's my life during the NFL season. My, my, my black lab, Marley and I, he's totally happy watching 12 hours of football with me. Yeah, it's great. Everybody who has a dog and who watches football knows exactly what I'm talking about, knows exactly what it feels like to have the dog walk across the couch yep. and like lay down and lean on your thigh. Like everybody knows that feeling. It feels so good. Yep, that's right. He's like, this is prime time. The dog is like, this is prime time now. You know, I, I'm convinced that my dog knows when it's Sunday. My wife, she's like, there's no way he knows. I say he knows every Sunday during football season what's about to happen. He knows when it is. The windows come open. We get our wing stop. He knows what's going on every time. It's great. And then the other one, this is from January, January 31st, 2018, 920 p.m. You asked this question. Does anyone know if steroids helps writers be better writers? And if yes, then does anyone know where I can get some? Thank you for your help. Yeah, that sounds like <laughs> a thing that I would definitely write. Yeah, I, I, that, that one spoke to me as well, because I think at the time I was, you know, probably sitting at the keyboard and struggling. And I was like, yeah, I want some I want some of those steroids. That would work. For sure. Yeah, that would have been. I'm sure what happened there was I read an article by somebody else. I read an article by Rembert Brown that was incredible, and then I just felt horrible, and I wanted to be better. That's yeah. probably what happened. Yeah, and Shay, one of the things I love about your Twitter feed is I know the food that you like to eat food at midnight because you say it tastes better at midnight. I know how much <laughs> yeah. I, I know how much you love your wife. You call her the goat, and your son. I know that everything you write is the best thing you've ever written. Correct. I love the superlatives and the hyperbole and all of that. And I love how you stop always what you're doing and you take a moment to try to boost a young writer's confidence. You do that a yeah. lot. You do that a lot. And that's cool. I, I, well, I feel like I owe that forward because there's, like I mentioned earlier, so many people who helped me even before I'd ever written a single thing. And I was just trying to email people to get advice or make connections there were people who would respond back. Very nice people. Will Leach, who I came across the website Deadspin early on in my career, or when I was first starting to write, and I saw his name and I read a couple of his stuff, a couple of his pieces, and I was like, "This guy's cool. I like the way he writes. I wonder if he'll talk to me." And he just, you know, he sent me like three or four emails with very real advice about how to get started. There's another guy named Jay Busby, oh, yeah. who, yeah, I know Jay. You know, yeah. you know Jay. Yeah, and uh, and this was before. Like I had no name recognition. Well, I, I know, I know Will. Anything. I know Will too. I know Will too. But yeah, <clears throat> both both those guys are great. Yeah, and it was like every so often somebody would do that for me. So how can I not do that? You know, what kind of a dick would that make me? How many writers are you mentoring right now? I think like about six hundred. <laughs> it's a fair. It's a fair 600. amount. I think every day I get three or four emails from people like hey can you read this can you tell me what you think how would you make this better and then if i do a thing where i put it on twitter like all right i've got some free time today send me your stuff send me your questions then that's usually like two or three hundred questions that that come in and it takes a long time to get through them but it feel it does feel good and also what people don't realize is that like if one of these people happens to their career takes off then they're gonna say my name on a podcast and that's gonna make me feel real good absolutely 
they'll, they'll, they'll pay it back the way you are, for sure. Yeah. If a young writer comes to you and asks you about choosing a career path, would you tell them to do what you did, get out in the real world, or would you suggest they aim themselves toward journalism school and a more classical writing education? I think if you want to be a writer, you know early on, then yeah, go go to uh, go to journalism school if you can. I also think I would also tell them that you do not have to wait. I get emails from people all the time like, "Oh, I'm a I'm a three months away from graduating. I have a degree in journalism, and like, how do I freelance?" I say, "You you should have been doing this three years ago when you started your classes. You don't have to wait. You don't need a degree to pitch a thing." So. It would it would be great if you could learn all of this stuff about journalism you need to from real actual people, and then also on the other side, also send some pitches and figure it out that way. Right, and you never because you never went to journalism school, but you you just learned organically a lesson I learned. I had to go to journalism school to learn this. I had a, a professor at Boston University tell me that that basically the secret of any of this is just do it. It's it's the Nike slogan. And you, you had said it earlier, Shay, and, and and that's it. Don't wait. You know, don't – when you're sitting in class, you've got to be writing every day, right? It's a muscle. you got to be – Yeah. you you got to be working it. you got to do it as often as you can. That's the only way you're going to get better. You can email me 100 questions, and I'm going to answer 100 questions for you, but it's the same as you emailing me asking me how to dribble a basketball. Like I can tell you all of the pieces, but you have to go out in the driveway and spend a couple hours dribbling before you actually know what you're doing. Your boss, Sean Fennessy, gave me a question that I want to ask you. How you observe other writers that you admire and how you evaluate and emulate them. The way that I, I don't know, the way that I observe them is I just read as much as I can. And when I feel like a thing is good, it's usually because they're writing in a way that I can't write. Like Sean is a perfect example. Sean writes these what feel like very profound stories in a way that I think the best way to describe it, I don't did did you happen to play middle school football by any chance or like lower level football? I did. Okay. Yep, for sure. So you know when you're teaching the when you're coaching the kids or when you're being coached and you're learning how to like cover a kickoff and you've got all the kids lined up and the the kicker kicks it and everybody starts running and you teach them to sort of close in on the runner like a net from the outside in. Make sure they don't get outside of you. I feel like when Sean writes a story, he writes it in that way. And it just sort of in just grabs you all around and eventually you're trapped in it and there's nothing you can do about it. That's the way he writes. I can't write like that, so I'm drawn to, I think, writers who do do that. Uh, Doreen St. Felix, who is at The New Yorker, is another mm -hmm. another good example of somebody who writes in that way. And I think it's just mesmerizing that you can start an, an article in one way and by the time you get to the end of it the reader has all of the information they need but you didn't have to go like okay point number one is this point number two is that like that's crazy to me so that's what i look for when i'm trying to figure out if a, a writer is good um i guess that's how i would evaluate it and i think that serves me a bunch when i do that or when i find somebody who writes like that because it does make me want to try to be better that there's a definite competition in there i feel like i have a bunch of one-way competitions with a hundred different people that they don't know about that i'm trying to be better than they are jay tell me about your your book writing how did that begin whose idea was that and um how gratifying was that and how is that writing different from writing an article 
Uh, you asked like five questions right I there. Did. Let me try to make sure. Whose I get, idea was it to write a book? Let's get start all there. of them. Start there. Bun B, the uh-huh. rapper Bun B, was his idea to write a book. This was I was at the Houston Press, and I had never written a book before, never done anything, and I think it was summer school, if I'm not mistaken. I was teaching summer school, and I got a phone call. Like, you know, I keep my phone off during the school day, so school is over, the kids are leaving. I'm walking out of the building. I turn my phone on. I've got a voicemail, and I answer it or I check it and it's from Bun B world famous rapper half of UGK one of my favorite rap groups of all time and he's saying hey Shay it's Bun I want to write a book and I want to write a book with you and I'll never forget this because I thought it was like the coolest thing in the world he said don't call me back today don't call me back today talk to your wife first and then hit me after that and uh, so it was his idea Then to do a to do a book we sat down we had lunch together we talked about maybe a few ideas for the book that he might want to do and we were circling stuff and eventually we landed on the coloring book and was that his idea or your idea the coloring book was my idea i thought he was going to say no to it but we all he told me was he wanted to do a book that was funny and i thought a coloring book would be really funny because i I was already on Twitter at the time, and I was covering a lot of underground rap groups or rap rappers in Houston. And I was doing this thing where I would take a picture of one of the rappers who I was covering and then, like, draw it. And I know how to draw. So I was like, I would draw it and then post it on Twitter, and the person would see it, and he or she would be like, oh, that's cool, and they would like it, and other people would make little funny comments about it. And I thought, hey, it would probably work out really well if I did this with like very famous rappers. And so that's why I asked Bun if he wanted to do a coloring book rather than a regular book. And I thought he would say no, but he was all for it. Oh, that's so cool. And you and how'd you get an agent? Uh, I didn't have an agent for the coloring book. You I, didn't? No, okay. I tried to pitch it to a few places. Uh, they, they all said no, we're not interested. They either said no or they didn't respond to it. And the people who said no said that there's, there's no way people are interested in this. doesn't make sense. And I was like, all right, well, I know one way that I can, like, I need a proof of concept. So I started a Tumblr, Bun B's Rap Coloring and Activity Tumblr. It's still up today, actually. And uh, I started posting coloring pages on there. I would draw the picture, post it on there, draw the picture, post it on there. And then after like a week of it existing, it went viral and it was spread all over. And it ended up in like the New Yorker's. Our, our New York Magazine's approval matrix, I think that's what it's called. Oh yeah, that's that's exactly okay. what it's called. Yeah, and it ended. That's big. That's that's big. Getting yeah, that. it ended up in there, and they said like a, a nice thing about it. And when that happened, then publishers came back like, oh, actually, that was not a terrible idea. Let's right. do it. And yeah, one of they those never people to rejecting it earlier though, did they? Shay, they never. Said, no. Oh, yeah, oh we never. Know. We we said no earlier. Now we've never no. seen this yeah. before. Is how they played it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. But one of the people is this woman named Samantha Weiner from Abrams Books. She like dug my contact information up through LA Weekly or the Houston Press or something like that, and she got in contact with me, and we spoke on the phone. And to me, she felt like the most natural fit for the book, and she wanted to do it. So I was just like, cool, like an idiot. She goes, "Hey, we'll give you ten thousand dollars to do this book," and I was like, "Yes, I'm in." I'm in. I didn't even like, I didn't have an agent. I didn't know about negotiating. I didn't want to say no. I didn't want to screw anything up. I was just, 
and I'll never forget because I said yes, and she was like, "Really? Like that's just that fast?" I just I, that's when I knew I had messed up. Um, <laughs> well, you're thinking that's five times with the cover on the Houston ex- Press page, exactly. Right? That's exactly what I was yeah. thinking. That's that's a fi- that's a that's a five hundred percent raise from a check that you know got your attention. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so we did the coloring book, and that one you know it did pretty well. It did better than we thought it was going to do, and even now it still sells copies. Uh, and they were asking to do another coloring book, and I was like, Nah, I didn't want to be the coloring book guy. So let's figure out another idea. And that's how we ended up with the the wrap yearbook, which we also did with Abrams. That was actually Samantha's idea. She asked to do a coloring book. I said, no, I don't want to do that. She's like, well, I have this thought for a book. It's about the most important rap song of every year, one chapter per year. And when she told me at first, I did like the, those other publishers. I was like, no, that sounds like a terrible idea. I don't ever want to do that. <laughs> and... Then we ended up in a spot where my wife and I, we were trying to, I think we were trying to move at the time. So we needed a check. And I, then I called Samantha back, like, actually, that was a pretty good idea you had. Let's do it. And you didn't have an agent for that book? Uh, I actually did for that one. I, But I didn't need an agent, I, I realized later on at that point. Uh, but I did have an agent. And so I was like, hey, I told him, we've got this deal in place already. He just sort of swooped in and took a percentage and uh, kept it moving. That's pretty good for him or her. It was him. It was a. It was him. Yeah, and he ended up being really great for it. Like the, when the documentary happened, that was because of some some like connections he had. You know what I'm saying? So it all worked out for everybody. I, I felt like he, ev- he eventually he, earned his money. Maybe not right away. Yeah, yeah. That's. I think that's where agents are really helpful. Is they connect the dots that you don't know. I already had the relationship with the publisher, so I was like, well, why do I need an agent for this? And then he goes, well, on the back end, I'm going to be able to do this sort of stuff. And I go, all right, well, let's find out. And you used, obviously used Twitter in a way to sell that book, the basketball and other things book in a, in a, in a great way. I mean, you've got bookmarks. Talk, talk about your strategy of book selling uh, using Twitter as a tool. Um, all right. This same as everything else sort of happened by accident when the coloring book was coming out. My plan was, all right, if I get this into all of the big publications, then everybody will see it and everybody will buy it. Mm-hmm. That's, that was my plan. So it's like, oh, I want to get it in Rolling Stone. So we got it featured in Rolling Stone. Oh, I want to get it in LA Times. We got it featured in LA Times. We had like a, a bunch of very good press around it. And then the book came out in the first week, I think, if I remember correctly, it sold maybe like 900 copies or something, which to me was a great amount of copies at the time. Like I can't believe 900 people bought this. Um, but... I, I thought it was going to be more than that. And when the rap yearbook came out and I was trying to figure out, okay, how do I get more people to buy this? Totally by accident, the, the Amazon page pops up one day. It comes up several months before the book is actually on sale. And I got a, an alert, like a Google alert, because my name was in it. And I clicked on it. And I was like, oh, crap, this is crazy. There was no cover for the book. There was no information about what the book was about or anything. It was just, here's the thing. And it's, so just t- it's just a title in your name. Yeah, it's no, I just know, a title in yeah, a name, yep, right? Yep, yep. And so I posted that on Twitter, like, oh, this is a, like, I wasn't joking. This is a real book that I'm writing. Look, you can see here's proof. And we were actually going on a trip from Houston to Corpus Christi. My sister lives down there. And I posted that right before we left. And then we drove down there. And it takes, you know, f- uh, several hours to get from Houston to Corpus. It ended up taking us like, five or six, I think, because we were making stops. And by the time I got there, 
I opened up Twitter to check it because, you know, we keep the phone off in the car. And I opened up Twitter and I, I remembered the link and I clicked on it to see it again. And the book was a, was number one bestseller in whatever, like the basketball category or rap category, something like that. Because Amazon updates the sales rankings every hour. Right. And I was like, like wow. oh shit, this is crazy. This is seven months before the book is even out and we are already up here. And now to get up in, on Amazon rankings, you don't need to sell a ton of books. If you have like one strong hour where you sell a hundred copies of a book, you can shoot up to like whatever into the top 500 books or something. Because again, it just ca calculates for that hour. Um, but when I saw that, I was like, yo, this is way more effective. Me just going straight to the people. And I think at the time I had maybe 40,000 people following me on Twitter. And I said, well, if I just get 1% of these people, like that's already several hundred copies of a book, like, this is crazy. Let me let me try that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and it, and it and it works. And you and you call people who buy your book a hero. You encourage them to buy two or six or twelve. I mean, it's a full court press. It's a it's a very real full court press because I found out you don't need anything beyond like what you have in front of you really. Because with the rap yearbook, when that one came out, we did 900 copies of the coloring book. The first week with the rap yearbook, we did a little over 8,000 copies. So I had, again, 40,000 people following me. We converted 8,000 sales out of that or, you know, whatever that percentage is. And I was like, yo, this is, this is crazy. That was a very big and real success for me. Then when the basketball book came out, we get 33,000 copies the first week. It was like, this works. Let's just do this. We don't. We don't need to try to appeal to all of the whole entire world. Let me just go to the people who I spend a couple hours every day with on the internet and ask them to buy this. And the other thing that you, you don't just use your Twitter handle to sell books. You also use it to raise money. And I wanted to ask you about that. I'm always touched by that. For instance, with your newsletter, um, I know that you ask for some money because it costs money to send a newsletter. I, it costs me money to send the Sunday long read out now because we have so many subscribers. It's a couple grand a year, I think it's up to now, and and you asked you asked for some mm -hmm. donations for the newsletter, and but you didn't you you didn't put it in your pocket, right? You can you you gave that money away. Yeah, I didn't ask for the donations. Let me be clear about that, since we're clearing things up. What happened? The same thing you're talking about. I started a newsletter. Me and Arturo is the same guy who did the illustrations for the rap year book yep. and the basketball book. Him and I started a newsletter because. I was working at Grantland. Grantland got shut down, so I was out of a job for several months, and I was bored, and I wanted to continue writing. So we started that newsletter. was illustrated. The plan was we'll just do this for a couple months, and we'll see what happens. And I was using MailChimp. MailChimp gives you a free account up to like 200 subscribers or something. And when I posted the link for people to sign up for it, all of a sudden we were at 30,000 subscribers pretty quickly, which meant, okay, it's going to cost – few hundred bucks to send this newsletter each month and i made a joke about it on twitter i showed like a screenshot of how far past the free account we had gone and somebody saw it or somebody was like hey well you should let me pay you a dollar or something and it's just started like that i kept telling them well no you i mean i don't want to take your money because i was still getting paid by espn i had a job technically i mean i had a paycheck so it was like whatever i don't need this um, but they did it. Right. So after four weeks of them asking to make a donation, I put a donation button in there. 
And I talked to Arturo about it ahead of time, and we were like, hey, let's take this money and let's just give it to where, you know, to a, uh, it was a shelter in Dallas, a woman's shelter that Arturo had spent some time in with his mother when he was a kid. And uh, so I was like, yeah, let's give it to them, and we won't tell anybody until after. So we put the button in there, the donation button, the letter goes out. It was going out every Tuesday at 9 a.m., and by like 9.02 a.m., my phone just started going nuts. It's buzzing, buzzing, buzzing because of these donations coming in. It ended up being several thousand bucks, which I thought was nuts. And yeah. um, so I you know, gave Arturo some of the money because he had been drawing all the pictures for a really cheap price. And then we sent several thousand dollars to the shelter, and everybody freaked out about it. And I was like, well, I mean, that was kind of cool. Well, let's do that again. And we waited a few weeks, and we did it again. And then it just became like a thing we were associated with. It's fantastic. It's really, it's really admirable. It's wild that it started out so little like that. And then in 2017, we donated over $200,000 in cash to places, which is unbelievable. That's, that's fantastic. Um, How'd you connect with Arturo? He was, uh, he lives in Dallas. He had drawn a flyer for a rap group that I like called the Outfit Texas. And I just saw the flyer and I was like, oh, this is really good art. This is what I want the rap yearbook to look like. And I contacted them and they connected me to their manager and she connected me to Arturo and I just emailed them, got them on the phone and talked them into doing a book. And then you were, he was with you again for basketball and other things. <laughs> yeah, I really liked, I mean, I didn't really like working with him. He's terrible to work with, but I liked the art a lot and... So when we did that, why is he terrible to work with? Well, at the time he was 20, I don't know, 24 years old or something. He was still uh-huh. a, a baby in my eyes. And I thought he was handling himself irresponsibly as far as the work was concerned. And so we, we butted heads a bunch. I almost fired him like three times while we were working on the book. I kept telling him, this is like, I got to fire you because this is not working out. Um, but again, his and when you say irresponsible, when you say irresponsible, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Shay. When you say irresponsible, you mean he, he just he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. He was missing, blowing deadlines, or yeah, he would so? just disappear for like ten days. And we were on a very tight schedule at the time, which it was my fault that we were so on such a tight schedule. But I made it clear this is a schedule. I need this stuff on these days. And he would just disappear for a while, and then have some crazy excuse like he broke his leg falling off a ladder or something. I don't know. He always had a crazy thing that he said had happened to him. And that's why he couldn't answer his texts. And so we had that going on early on. And uh, But again, his artwork was so good that I f- was like, well, now I understand why people put up with stuff from famous people. Because like, I, I need the art. And we did the basketball book together. And this time he was, that time he was much more focused and like he understood everything. And after he saw the success of the rap yearbook, I think he realized like this could be my full-time actual job because he was still working a part-time job then. And then he was great. And now he's like one of my favorite people to work with because I know this is going to happen when it needs to happen. Where were you when you got word that Barack Obama picked basketball and other things as one of his favorite books of 2017? It was the same place I am right now. I was sitting on my couch. It was on. De- it was December thirty first. So you know, everybody just started chilling out during the day, and same as with the newsletter, my phone just started buzzing a whole bunch one afternoon. And I opened it and I saw somebody sent me a screenshot of the Obama thing, and I immediately assumed it had been photoshopped and was faked. 
So I went to his web, I went to his Facebook and saw it myself, and I was like, "Holy shit, this is a, this is a real thing." <laughs> How'd you feel? I felt extremely good, is how I felt because yeah. you know for several different reasons. But like, what's a bigger cosign than Barack Obama saying he liked your book? Um, like who else gets to say that? I don't. I don't personally know anybody else who was on that list. So like, out of all of my friends, even if they wrote a book, and even if it was a bestseller, and even if it was a number one New York Times bestseller, it still wasn't picked by Barack Obama. So like, I win that competition every time. Absolutely, yeah. You crush that competition. Yeah, no like question. if you and I are arguing about accomplishments, and you're just like, well, one of us has a shelf full of Pulitzers, and the other one is you. And I and then I just got to be like, well, you got me there. There's nothing I could say. Yeah, but you got me on the Barack Obama. You got me on the number one New York Times bestseller. There's lots of things you got I don't have, Shay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the envy, the envy flows both ways, man. We're just stacking up chips to like battle each other. That's how That's I feel. It. That's it. Exactly. It's a good way of putting it. Now, I, I saw on Twitter this week you said that basketball and other things is at ninety-two thousand five hundred sales. Correct. You're gonna you're gonna cross the hundred thousand sales mark, which is a, another remarkable thing. And I actually saw somebody who replied, who had a really cool reply to it, says, is it like a in, in the music business where you get like a gold record or a platinum? platinum. <laughs> yeah, you go you go platinum when you hit 100,000 book sales. I kind of like that. I like that re- response somebody I would, to your tweet. I would very much like it if they sent me a platinum plaque. Yeah. And you're going to definitely and you're going to definitely do it. Did the Obama endorsement really uh, turbocharge sales? Uh, no, it didn't actually. It was just, you know, it's just a thing that people saw and was cool. Like, okay, you saw the list. How many books yeah. did you buy that he recommended after that? Besides yours? Yeah. None. Yeah, see? That's what I'm talking may, about. May, may, maybe one other actually. There might have been one other one that, that I was, you know, that I had skimmed or something. Maybe I didn't even buy it. Somebody sent it to me. But no, a lot of those I didn't recognize. Yeah. And, that's, I, and I hadn't read. And, and that's, I think that's a, a good indicator there of like, why a lot of times selling stuff on the internet is hard because even if somebody recommends it w- once or like, Oh, this is cool. Everybody buy this. You usually just sort of tune it out or ignore it. Even when it's Barack Obama, um, it's hard to, to do that sort of stuff, but no, it didn't have a big effect on the sales. I'm sure it helped a little bit, but there wasn't this big boost. Um, more than anything, it was just like a trophy that you get to have forever. Absolutely. A, a damn good one, too. And yeah. um, did you send him a thank you note? How do you send Barack Obama a thank you note? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You, fi- you find an address in Chicago. Uh, I don't know. You go, to, you go to one of his buddies. You go to Pluff or, you know, you go to somebody and you, you, you try to send a thank you note. You, you didn't know, do that. I, I, no, what I did was one of my, my buddies is writing or he was writing the, the book with Michelle Obama. And... He was working on that with her. So I emailed him like, hey, did you give Barack the book? How did this work? He's like, no, I didn't give it. I don't know how he got it. Um, and I was like, oh, well, tell him. Thanks, I guess. But no, I didn't write a note or send a note. I don't know how to do that. Now, I thought, I think I saw on Twitter that you said you're out of the book writing business. Is that is that correct? Am I right about that? Or did I get that wrong? Get, get that one wrong, too? No, you are correct. I'm out. Why is that? Because it's hard. It's hard to write a book. It's hard to sell a book. It's hard to, I don't know, it's just a lot of work. And now let me be clear, I'm out until somebody gives me a check and then I'm back in. Same as the other two books. 
But at the moment, I'm out. Yeah, but you must have, if you decide to do another book, Shay, somebody's going to write you a big check after the success you've had and the way you can sell books and just how great the books are. They're so much fun to read. I would hope so. I would hope that somebody is there with a gigantic, like a PGA check. <laughs> That's what I want. One of those big cardboard checks. Happy Gilmore style. I just want to put it in the back of my car and drive <laughs> to the bank with it. But 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 you're out, and and you say it's hard. It, it really is hard. I've done three of them. It's and I'm on my fourth. It's brutal, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you, it's hard to when you have a day job to put gas in the tank at night and crank on a book. It's really difficult. It's very very difficult to do that. Definitely. What's your fourth book? What are you doing right now? I'm writing a book with Seth Wickersham, my ESPN colleague, about the NFL, tentatively entitled Powerball, basically about how all the owners do whatever they want to do uh, in the modern-day NFL with Roger Goodell and similar to the pieces that we've done for ESPN together about right. behind the scenes, the way power is flexed. And, that sounds uh, very serious. It's pretty serious. It's uh, it's a lot of work. Um, the deadline is, is still more than a year and a half away, but it feels like it's tomorrow. So Yeah, um, it'll sneak up on you. I've made that yeah. mistake a bunch of times. Yeah. Did you feel under the gun on on, on all your books? Yeah, I was like six months late with the rap year book. I was three months late with basketball and other things. It was terrible. Wow. All right, I know you got to run and I've got to run. I, I've got a final question for you. It's, it's a legacy question. So in a okay. sentence, how do you want people to remember Shea Serrano, the writer? I know you got a lot more writing ahead, but what do you want your legacy to be when people think about you as a writer? I want them to say that I was an influential writer who did things that were more important than writing. I so think you, want, would, you want them to think about, you want them to actually make a judgment about Shea Serrano the person. Yes, yes. And what, no. and what do you want them to say about Shea Serrano the person? Uh, that I was good, that I didn't waste, I, didn't, I don't want to be a guy who wasted it. I've got, you know, a couple hundred thousand people following me on the internet. I don't want to not use that properly. I think there's a responsibility there. So I feel like when it's all over, as long as they say I didn't waste it, then I'll be in a pretty good spot. It's the it's the Shea Serrano philosophy of shoot your shot, right? Yeah. There you go. You got to use that. Use it. And you do. Well, Remarkably thanks. well. You do, man. Remarkably well. I'm a big admirer, a big fan of your writing and your work and you as a person as well. And I, I can't thank you enough for making time to be here. Well, I appreciate you having me, man. It meant a lot to be invited by like a proper professional. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, listen, man, thank you so much. Keep up the phenomenal work. Next time you get to the 305, please let me know. I'd love to meet you. All right, homie, take it easy. Okay, thanks so much. You've been listening to another edition of the Sunday Long Read Podcast. If you like what you just heard, please take a moment to like the SLR pod on Apple iTunes or even write a quick review, preferably a very favorable one. And for the very best long form and great journalism delivered free every Sunday to your inbox, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter, the Sunday Long Read. Go to sundaylongread.com backslash subscribe. Coming up on this podcast, our guests will include Rachel Syme, Brett Michael Dykes, Tom Genot, and Charlotte Wilder. Special thanks to our producer, Julian McKenzie. I also had smart advice from the SLR's Peter Bailey-Wells. And last but not least, thanks to my friend and SLR 
co-pilot Jacob Feldman. Thanks for listening to the SLR Podcast. Before you know it, we shall return with another great guest. See you soon.